This is Neil Rockind. I'm the host of the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. And week in and week out, we feature some of the very best criminal defense lawyers, very best civil trial lawyers anywhere in the country. We pick their brains. We talk about war stories. If you like the content, subscribe and like. We've got thousands upon thousands of views on our YouTube videos. We've got thousands of, of listens and likes and shares on the, the podcast which you can get on any platform, anywhere, anywhere where you get your podcasts. And today is no exception. I've got an incredible guest, and he is none other than Daniel Callahan. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Neil. My pleasure to be here. All right. So tell me a little bit about your career. What kind of law do you practice? Where do you practice? I'm sure it's all over the United States, but where do you primarily practice? Where your office is located? Our office is in Santa Ana, California. And our practice is throughout California. I'd say 80% of the cases are in California. About 20% are scattered throughout the U.S. And I've tried cases in other jurisdictions, but we're well known in California, certainly. Um, I, I know that you consider yourself to be a trial lawyer. I do. And there's a difference between trial lawyers and, and settlement lawyers. I know good lawyer, good trial lawyers will get the best settlements, but what's the difference since you're a trial lawyer between trial lawyers and, and, and settlement lawyers? Well, with my own experience, for the first 15 to 20 years of my practice, I was more of a litigator and I didn't have a lot of trials. However, in the last 20, I've uh, broke into the trial world and I love it. I love talking to juries. I prefer. Uh, doing a jury trial to a judge trial, because the jury, I can talk to them, they don't question me, and I can just lay it all out, and I can influence them on what's going on. Meanwhile, a judge trial, he'll come ahead and ask me this question or that question, and I prefer not to go through that drill. So I love juries. And I'd say so, nearly, nearly every uh, jury verdict I've had has been a unanimous verdict in our favor on both the plaintiff side and defense side. Uh, that's pretty impressive. It is. Tell, tell me how you got into the practice of law and how you ultimately ended up doing personal injury and um, um, the types of cases that you handle. All right. Well, as you know, I'll start out by saying I do have the largest jury verdict in Orange County history at 934 million. And I did have the largest personal injury settlement, uh, 50 million as of 2007. Right. But now Daniel, let me, those, let me, let me, let me those numbers require those numbers require us to slow down a little bit. OK, so hold on. You well, have the largest jury verdict in the United States in United no, States history in Orange County history. And what was the number? Nine hundred and thirty four million four hundred and some odd thousand. Wow. That is a huge verdict. All right. The reason I, I th the reason I threw that out there is to tell you how I got into law. So I graduated from high school, fifth in my class, from the bottom. So that's not too good. I went work construction, <laughs> and I did a lot of, I climbed trees on my color chainsaw, chopped things down, throw it in the wood chipper. And one day, I'm throwing the wood in the wood chipper, and what am I doing here? My buddy got, the, got me the job. But he, I know why he's here. He's standing next to his dad. But So I thought, my parents told me I'd be a good lawyer. So I thought, okay, damn it, I'm going to go to college, become a lawyer. So I just put everybody on a pedestal that I'm opposing. And by the time it really came to grades or anything, 
I was so prepared, I blew everybody away. So I had straight A's in college. I thought it must be pretty good at college. And then I went to law school, finished in the top 10. Then I went, I was hired by a firm in Hawaii, which was the oldest and largest firm in the state. And uh, I learned my litigation skills from them. And then after two years, I moved to Newport Beach, where I learned litigation skills from another large firm until I opened up my own practice in 1984. That's how I got my start uh, in being a lawyer. Uh, <clears throat> I think I'm very fortunate uh, to have good mentors that helped me along the way. How did you end up progressing into either handling or successfully handling the kinds of cases that could result in, in th those types of verdicts or settlements? The way I handle litigation is to think about everything I can do and do everything I can think of, right? So I don't leave any stone unturned. My, the hallmark of my success has been preparation. And if you prepare the way I do, then you know every aspect of the case. And when you walk into the trial, uh, you just exude confidence. I feel like the 800 pound gorilla. So that's the secret that I have. Uh, by example, how do I get a big case? So the Beckman Coulter case against Flextronics wound up being a $934 million verdict, unanimous. But when I started that case, it was a $2 million breach of contract case. In discovery, mm -hmm. I just discovered a fraud, a $300,000 fraud. We went to trial and the defense only offered me a million dollars. So we kept on going during the course of the trial I elicited enough damning testimony from the principles of Flextronics to amend the complaint to conform to proof I'd already obtained. So we added two more causes of action for economic duress, which is a subspecies of fraud, especially coercion. So when the jury came back, oh, by the way, one of the witnesses, well, what happened with Flextronics, Beckman Coulter, needed somebody to manufacture circuit boards. They went to Plextronics, two years into a five-year contract. They said, we're breaching, you know, sue me. Um, then I discovered that fraud and the person over at uh, Flextronics was told by her supervisor, don't tell Beckman Coulter that we're overcharging them. She testified on the stand. I was a single mother. I could not afford to lose my job. So I lied. And I was going to take that secret to the grave until I had to testify under oath. And that was an explosive moment. Mm. Beckman Coulter, sister, or pardon me, Flextronics, didn't want to tell us what their net worth was. But it's a public company. We can figure it out and roughly know what it is. But they told the jury they can pay any punitive damage award. Okay, that's bold. And I certainly use that in my closing. So as it turns out, they said the they could pay any. They said they could pay any punitive damage award. So they were basically <clears throat> daring. They were almost daring you to ask for an extraordinary number. I did ask for what I thought was an extraordinary number. I asked for 125 million. Uh, so what we had, we have a two million dollar breach of contract. We have a three hundred thousand dollar fraud. So I got the two million on the contract. I got the three hundred thousand plus a million and a half in punitives. And on the last two that I added seven weeks into the jury trial. 
I don't recall what the compensatory was, but the third cause of action, I got $180 million in punitive damages. The fourth cause of action and last cause of action, again, I don't recall what the compensatory was, but the jury gave me unanimously $750 million on that mm. cause of action. So this was not a huge case coming into the office. It was a huge case when it left. So what was that like? Take me to, um, I want to dissect that, that the, the, the trial a little bit and ultimately the, the verdict. So let me start with the latter because the verdict is eye-popping. Yes. For those who don't know, verdicts of that sort are not, um, they are, they, they, they are infrequent to say the least. You have to be at the very top of your game as a lawyer to be able to get a, a verdict like that. Um, or I would say a verdict that's even close to that, probably even 10% of that. But so take us to the moment of the verdict. You asked for, an you thought was a an eye-popping, staggering number. I did. Did you, and, and, did you ask for the amount that they gave you or did, you, did they give you more than they asked? They gave me much more than I asked for. And what I did with the jury, I bond with juries during uh, voir dire, opening statement, and they can just tell that I'm prepared and I know what I'm talking about and I impeach witnesses that try to pull something over on me. But <clears throat> the interesting thing about reading the verdict was the verdict came back on a Tuesday at about three o'clock in the afternoon. I said to the judge, you know, rather than read this verdict today, why don't we read it in the morning? Because we had 16 jurors and you picked at the end of the trial after three months, you picked out four people that are going to be alternates and they were visibly disappointed. So let's call them, have them come back and for the reading of the verdict. What I was really doing, oh, by the way, I said it can enhance our chances for settlement. Uh, what I was really doing, I didn't want the story to be picked up by the press at three o'clock in the afternoon and have the reporter throw something against the wall. <laughs> and then the next day, it's yesterday's news. So instead, uh, I went back. I sent out a press release to everybody. The courtroom was filled with reporters and uh, with people from my office. Uh, so when the verdict came down, the judge read the verdict. Now, usually it's the clerk, but mm -hmm. this is so big. So when he said $180 million, I was like, whoa, that's impressive. And I'm, now when he says the last one, $750 million, Time slowed down. I was watching his lips as he formed it, $750 million. Opposing counsel can hear his pen snap and just awes. Pen snapped. I'm shocked that the guy didn't fall over in his chair. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he went home and got had a stiff drink but, uh, uh, or two. Yeah. So, there was a lot of reporters there, and both companies are publicly traded. So, both companies are frozen within 15 minutes of the reading of the verdict. Oh my God. And also all the reporters were there. So I was able to give them all the information. And it was really, they did a wonderful job accurately uh, discussing what had just happened in the trial. So trading of these publicly traded corporations was halted. Yes. Just the verdict, because the verdict could just completely destroy the, the value of the stock, I presume. Yes. Right? Yeah, and the funny thing is, something I did not know, but the next day, Flextronics was scheduled to ring the bell 
It's open the market. And rather than they want to just brag about all the good stuff they do, but instead is what the hell happened in California? (laughs) (laughs) So that's a So tell me about tell me about your you 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 highlighted that you have a way of connecting with juries. Um, so walk me through a little bit of the jury selection that, that you, you, you typically do, or the jury selection you did in that case. I mean, like bottom line is the jury had to really trust you, right? They really had to have believe in you. I know they believe in your case, but they also have to believe in you. Um, so, so tell, tell us a little bit about that. I pride myself on my jury selection skills. And first of all, I will, I don't just wing it. Uh, I prepare different thoughts and I go over those different thoughts with different jurors. But what really gets them is when the judge is saying, thank you all for being here. Let me tell you about the experience. Let me tell you what happens in the courtroom. I'm not listening to that. I'm looking at the jurors and I'm looking at my notes of their names. and I memorize every one of their names. So by the time I get up, I don't say juror number one. I say, Mr. Gonzalez, and then I will go, Mr. Gonzalez, Ms. Smith, do you agree with what Mr. Gonzalez had to say? And I'll bounce. I don't go juror number one, two, three, four. Mm -hmm. I just bounce all over the place, right? So they know they have to stay alert because I may be asking them a question about what somebody else just said, you know, and yeah, it's a simple question. You ask how they feel about something. And if they give you an answer you like, then you say, does anybody here disagree with Mr. Gonzalez? And if they represent, if they disagree, they okay, I'll note that because you're probably gone. And if it's bad, mm-hmm. so they say something bad, who agrees with that? And if, we, if they agree, well, okay, they're likely going to be gone. Uh, I believe in uh, being yourself and communicating with the jury what your thoughts are. Uh, I don't get too highbrow. I'm not capable of being highbrow. <laughs> Uh, I try to be down to earth and friendly. I will never embarrass a juror, even if they say something I really hate. Uh, so I, I try to bond. And then when the opening statement comes, I've got that fully prepared, what we want to have, what we can show the jury. And um, my preparation shows that I believe in what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So it's the same so thing with all with, the exams. What do you do with a juror who, um, with a quiet juror? with somebody when you're asking, you know, Mr. Smith, um, did you, do you, did you hear Mr. Gonzalez? Yes. Do you, you know, do you agree or disagree? What do you do with a juror who is just sitting there silently? Um, If I don't get a read on them that I like them or they like me, they're over in the short list of potential strikes. Uh, but I try to draw things out of people. I try not to, of course, not to embarrass anybody, but I do try to draw something out. If they're being a little stubborn with me, then I figure they're not really on board. They're not really on my team. So they're likely to be struck. And do you try the cases? Like we'll talk about the one case, this case so far, the, the, was it the Platronics case? Yes. Um, when, when you were trying that case, could you tell me, did, did you have co-counsel in the courtroom? Did you use a jury consultant? Did you have associates that were helping you? Did you use any kind of AV equipment person to sit behind you and put things up on the, sure. on the 
Well, that's a funny thing. I do. I did myself. I say I tried it, and Brian McCormick was my second chair. Brian is one of my attorneys at Callahan and Blaine. Uh, we had another attorney back at the office doing paperwork when we want to have a motion or something. Uh, but did I use a jury consultant? Yes, I did use a jury consultant. And after the first day of consultation, we said, you don't have to come back tomorrow because he thought this was a breach of contract case. This is a simple case. And I'm treating this as a plaintiff's case because Flextronics manufactured life-saving equipment, blood analyzers. And if we had not gotten all the parts from Flextronics so we can make those blood analyzer circuit boards ourselves for the blood analyzers, it was going to have a negative impact on the American public's health and safety. So, because imagine all these blood analyzers, they have circuit boards. If they need a replacement and they can't get one, then this hospital doesn't have a blood analyzer. That clinic doesn't have one. You're in the neighborhood. There's all these hospitals that have these. And if they would be, couldn't have the circuit boards, what's going to happen? So the president, I'm sorry, the COO came in, not really prepared for what I was doing. He thought it was a breach of contract case. I thought it's all about the American public's health and safety. So I asked him, did you give any consideration to American public's health and safety when you breached that contract? So <laughs> he starts laughing. And I go, oh, my God. Like, I couldn't believe you just did that. You know. Uh, and also, there's another person that... Uh, engaged in extortion. We needed these things called lifetime buys. Uh, you buy them all. If you, if, once you run out of them, it's really hard to get more of them. So we needed those for the circuit breakers, but Flextronics wouldn't give them to us unless we bought out all the inventory in their warehouse on contracts unrelated to ours. So we, and they said they're gonna get, destroy it. We had to give them a, a wire to money the next day. Uh, that COO said, when I asked about that person who made that decision, says, yes, we, we try to encourage that conduct in our company. We, we try to nurture, that's his word, we try to nurture that behavior. Really? You're nurturing that behavior? Uh, so Flextronics was painted with such a black brush. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. And they were cocky. Oh, oh, here's one thing. The COO. Uh, I'm examining him. That's not the end of the day. It's 4.30. I'm not done. He's got to come back tomorrow. He says, I can't come back tomorrow. I've got a flight to Singapore. So the judge asked the jury, is it okay if you can stay here for another hour so that we can accommodate this gentleman on his flight? Uh, <clears throat> the jury reluctantly said yes, because they have responsibilities. They may have to pick up a child from school. They may have this. They may have that. But mm -hmm. reluctantly, they said, okay. As I proceeded with my cross-examination, I ended with this. Uh, Mr. McNamara, I understand you have a flight to catch tonight. Mm -hmm. yes. Isn't it true, Mr. McNamara, you're on flight 214, leaving at 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, and you're seated in seat 2B? How did you find that out? How did you get that? So and I caught him because we have an investigator. We find things out. Mm -hmm. But I caught him right there making them wait an extra hour because he lied, saying he's going tonight. But he's not going until the next, after, next afternoon. Unbelievable. Right. That is a – and <clears throat> seat 2B sounds like first class, second seat. You know, that's the way it sounds to me. 
Yeah. So most so, of those jurors are hustling to get out of there to avoid a late night, you know, rush hour traffic to try to make it home to save, legitimately try to save twenty or thirty dollars on healthcare, or home care, or child care. Right. Right. I said, I mean, and he actively lied to the court. And what was his? What was the look on his face when you pulled that out of? When you pulled it that was out? Total shock. It was shocking. How do you know that? How do you know that? Which, by the way, is admission that is true, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, what did their lawyers do? You know, I really wasn't looking at them at the time, but I'm sure they're just going, I'm hating, I'm hating life right now. I'm just hating life. <laughs> so let me understand something. They be, this is a great story. So they began this case with <clears throat> thinking that it was you were that it was potentially a seven seven figure case that you were that that that, that was how it began for them right their exposure was seven figures yeah two million and by, the maybe less. That, and by the time this trial was over they experienced a verdict um the largest jury verdict in in orange county history of 930 million and and change if i can say that without sure, disrespect yeah. Do you think that they had, did they have any idea that the case was that going to go from, you know, a, a significant case to a monumental case uh, of this sort? Well, I can tell you this. Remember, I talked to the judge about not reading the verdict mm -hmm. until the following day. And I did tell the judge, maybe that will give us an opportunity to settle. So I offered opposing counsel a high low, no matter what the jury does. If they award more than 16 million, we'll cut it at 16 million. If they award less than eight, we'll at least get 8 million. They turned that down. So this is after the closings, after, right when the verdict's ready to be read. And they turned down at 816 high low. So mm. probably a little surprise when it came into 934. Wow. That's just a... I mean, that's a massive, I mean, that's just a massive monster verdict. Don't even know what to even say about that. Yeah, but that's not, but that's huge. not your only, as you shared with us, that's not your only huge outcome uh, verdict settlement in a, in a case. You've had other, it seems, other really significant verdicts and settlements. Well, let me tell you about one settlement. There's these two gals that were, uh, jogging in the bike lane in Dana Point in the morning. And there is a uh, drunk, uninsured, hit-and-run driver that hit them, rendered them both quadriplegic. A lot of other lawyers looked at this, and they thought, well, the defendant is a uninsured, penniless uh, guy. There's no money there. So they turned it down. But when it came to me, I went to the site and looked at it. And I noticed something that they were right. They were running in the bike lane. A bike lane is usually four and a half feet wide to five feet wide. And it's properly marked bike lane, bike lane, bike lane. This one was a bike lane. It was 11 feet wide, the same width as a driving lane and no sign saying bike lane. What happened was they previously had it correct. There had been a landslide. They cleared it all up. They repaved the street, and they did, they did not follow the original engineer's advice on that bike lane. Because of that, they did not have governmental immunity. And so 
I looked at this, I thought, this is ridiculous. They just used the same, they just used the same, they just painted wherever they could fit uh, bike yeah, they, lane lines in. And yeah, it, yeah, yeah. They retarded or whatever you call it. Um, and they, oh they made God. it. Yeah. So you now you have uh, the driver. He had come onto the road. He's behind a truck. And the truck isn't going very fast. So he looks to his right to see who's coming up in the lane to his right. And nobody is coming up because it's a bike lane. So he pulled out from behind the truck, bam, and hit these oh two God. gals. So we took the case, even though that defendant wasn't going to have any money, and we sued the city of Dana Point. I made a demand for $50 million because that was the limit of their combined insurance, a number of municipalities grouped together. Um, they said no. They said they offered $30 million. Well, I didn't know at the time, but $30 million would have been the highest personal injury settlement in the history of the United States, right? So I turned it down on the Friday before the Monday trial. They said, okay, $50 million. Uh, I was called by whichever organization that is that keeps track of these things. And they said, Mr. Callahan, do you know that your nearest settlement is the highest personal injury settlement in the history of the United States? I said, no, I didn't know that. And you also have the third highest. I had one for 28. So it went 50, 29, San Francisco, and my 28. So I, for the time being, I had the first and third. I have no idea where they rank right now. How long did it, so in that case, there were there, uh, obviously it got to the, to the uh, proverbial courthouse steps, right? I mean, you were approaching a trial, you reject the settlement, and then you end up getting the settlement that you were seeking as you're, I don't want to say you're walking up the courthouse steps, but as a, we used to talk about the jury, you could, he could hear the, the, the footprints in the hallway of the jury as they were walking in, and then someone quickly settles the case. So you um, have to have to understand one more fact, please. Um, I had a similar case against the city of Dana Point in a location about 20 yards up and on the other side of the road. And I had had a client who'd been injured and we sued the city for having an unsafe um, bicycle lane. So I uh, had already examined all their people and it was admitted that they needed to do something. Our expert told them that someone is likely to get seriously injured or killed unless you straighten this out about the bike lane. Two years later, fast forward, this happens to my two clients. So I happen to know that they are on notice that somebody can get seriously injured or killed if they don't do something about it. All they had to do is get a bucket of paint and a stencil and start going bike lane, bike lane, bike lane. But they didn't do that. They didn't even wow. spend enough money to get a bucket of paint and a stencil. So I, I made a big issue of that, certainly, uh, in my negotiations. Did you work the case up? So you already had a lot of the information in the previous, from your previous representation. You already had an idea of what they were on notice for, it sounds like, from your previous representation. Did you work the case up fully? like doing discovery and everything else? Or did you oh, come yes. out of the box and say, hey, I got you guys. So, you know, oh, no, I, worked it and... I worked it okay. up. My, the hallmark of my success really is preparation, almost right. to an over-preparation. And so when we're going to trial, by example, um, I didn't know this is a rule in the office because nobody can leave before me. 
and I don't leave before 10. You know, so uh, I, if somebody's gone, I say, where the hell is Mark? You know, and then, <laughs> <laughs> right. So now they know. So yeah, nobody leaves. Uh, and my preparation is really your listeners or viewers, if this is going to be video, should really think about preparation. Because if you think of something and you think it's worthwhile, do it, you know, or get it started. Um, if you think oh, that's a good idea, but I'll do it tomorrow or, the ne or next week. Well, you know what? You don't know what's coming tomorrow or next week. You may have a big case walk in your in your doors that now is taking your attention away and you can't get back to what you're supposed to be doing. Some lawyers, uh, I have all my examinations for every witness done, typed up, indexed to exhibits and deposition testimony before I ever start. And uh, that way, if I'm, a witness is coming, I am already to examine him. But if something does come up, I have time to shift over and explore an issue. That's Give me an example. Give me an example okay. of that. So you, you have an outline, you have, do you, do you have the different, different kind of threads or lines in case the witness goes I, no or yes. And then, so kind of work that through with, for me, if you don't mind. I think it's, this to me is like the most fascinating stuff is how other, how other great lawyers, how their brains work in terms of organizing and trying to organize thoughts and be ready for whatever sure. may, 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 may happen. All my examinations, I do them, I get them typed out, then I modify them and I'd move it this way, move it that way until I'm, I've spent a lot of time. So I'm really happy, but here's an example. I represented Rico, um, uh, Rico Electronics and we were on the defense. Uh, and then we had a client uh, I should back up. I want to tell you one more thing. So I got the award of business litigation trial lawyer of the year. And right before me, this female lawyer got employment trial lawyer of the year. And that very morning, I got hired to be counsel in opposition to her. So when I got the award, I said, well, thank you so much. This means a lot to me, this prestigious award, especially in light of the other recipients, such as this woman. And I should, mm -hmm. oh, by the way, Michelle, you should know. Uh, that I just got hired this morning to be your opposing counsel in Rico. <laughs> <laughs> Place went crazy. So, but anyway, the, the, the thing, I had a client, one of their clients was testifying about suffering emotional distress. And he said, I felt like I was in a white room with no doors or windows. I thought, wait a minute. I mean, I know that. I'm pretty sure that came from an episode of The Twilight Zone. So mm -hmm. we, it was a Friday over the weekend. I sent a couple of my people to find all the episodes and they come back with the uh, jacket, you know, in the video. And it says, felt like I was in a white room with no doors or windows. So I go back on Monday and I'm examining this witness. And I say, so tell me, here's your left off on Friday. Is this correct? That you felt like you're in a white room and I've got this jacket in my hand. The jury can mm -hmm. see I'm looking at something. He can't. Is it true you said you felt like you're in a white room with no doors or windows? Yes, that's right. Oh, my God. Are you a Twilight Zone fan? Because that's what it says right here on the jacket. <laughs> and the jury goes, ah. But I had enough time to focus on something as absurd as that versus to have to go back and prepare for the next witness. One of the things that I think that I've, I've watched lawyers do that I and I've seen is that they um, – 
they can get caught in sort of the neverland the the of they stick to their script and aren't ah. able to adjust and some don't have a script or don't have an outline so that they can't get themselves back on track if they're just ad-libbing or they're trying to you know to 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 freelance i guess and that's one of the things that i was you know um and it sounds like you were able to strike a really good balance in your in these cases of being prepared, um, which gives you the time and the ability to to pursue like a you know a, a grounder somewhere if you have right. to, but then get back on track. You're right, Neil. And you also asked me a question of uh, do I how do I display things to the jury? Mm -hmm. So I work with my IT professional, and we I show them all the exams. We go over each exam and each uh, excerpt of the deposition testimony that I use for impeachment or support and every exhibit that I'm using to support it. And then he knows exactly where I'm going. He has it all ready to put up on the board. Uh, and that works wonders. You know, even the courts asked uh, my guy, Oliver, Oliver, can you show us that? Because he had total <laughs> respect for everything, you know? Okay, I get uh, that. But, so that, that in preparation, I work with someone so we both are on the same page. He even knows where I'm going to go if I decide to make a left turn. And I can tell uh, Oliver, okay, that's uh, Exhibit 32. Or he already knows it. He's, he's working as hard as I am. And the funny thing that I learned not too long ago was that trial was Oliver's very first trial. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he just... I had my work ethic and he adopted my work ethic, right? So we worked out really well together. How do you put together, tell me how you, um, what kind of, of technology you use um, in your trials? First, let's start, has, did you use something when you began that you don't use now or has, has it pretty much been the same? Has it evolved? Kind of walk me through that. I would love to but I am basically computer illiterate. So I, I rely on people, you know, they pick out the software. I tell them what I want. They show me what they have and we work within the, those boundaries. So uh, I could not tell you what software we use. Uh, if somebody wants to give me a call, I'll call Oliver and let you know. <laughs> do, you, do you use, well, certainly, and I want to make sure that, and, and this at the appropriate time, it can even be now that we will, um, that, that if people do want to contact you to ask about these verdicts or to ask for your uh, assistance in a case or, um, or what have you, um, how would they reach you? Well, I have formed Callahan Consulting Group. And the email, my email address is dan at callahanconsulting.com. And the, email, the website is callahanconsulting.com. So if they want to reach out to me, they have their email. If they go to the site, uh, they can also uh, look up the phone number. Uh, if anybody's paying attention right now to this, my cell phone number is 949-584-4434. Give it to us and one more time. One more time. 949-584-4434. So one thing, though, is if they do call and I don't recognize the number, I won't answer. But if they leave a message, I'll listen and then call them back. Okay, great. I get a lot of calls with numbers I don't recognize and they're salesmen or whatever they are. 
what is Callahan Consulting versus your your law firm? Right. Uh, Callahan Consulting uh, does the same thing I used to do with Callahan and Blaine, which is mentor the associates and the junior partners. And I also provide that same service to people outside of our law firm. So now Callahan Consulting does two things. We can call me, we can work and discuss the case, and I can give you strategic ideas of how to proceed. What I do really sometimes is very unusual. Uh, so I can advise of that. Also, if a client needs a lawyer uh, in a particular location, in a particular specialty, then I can research that area, come up with two or three lawyers in that specialty, talk to them first to find out if they're if there's enough time for them to take on this case. And if they're gonna work on it or it's gonna to go to a junior associate. Once I find out that I'm comfortable with two or three, I then go to the client, say here's two or three, and then we call the two or three, let the client make a decision, and there you go. The way I get paid is I get a referral fee from the law firm that is eventually hired. And if I do consulting with attorneys, I have an hourly rate. Now, the hourly rate, if you only use one hour of my time, is over $1,000, not by much. But if you want to hire me for more hours, then I drop that down significantly. Uh, so if somebody wants me to work for uh, 20 hours on different things, then I'll drop the rate to about 500 bucks uh, per hour. So does Callahan Consulting, when you work with other lawyers on cases, are you reviewing the case? How do you get to a point where you're comfortable advising other lawyers on how to try um, or what ideas to pursue in their cases? Usually I'll have a two hour conversation um, with the lawyer to find out okay, what's this case about? Because if I'm gonna give information or strategy, then I have to know something about the case. And I, I may need to review certain documents. I wanna give you an example of thinking outside the box. Smaller case. But I represented um, Dan. Matt. I'm not going to take your word for smaller case because your smaller case could end up being someone else's largest case ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this one, uh, Radco versus Diamond Walnut, a friend and client in Arizona ships materials to a job site in California, in Stockton, and uh, he want, he's not getting paid. I said, well, did you serve a 20 day notice? preliminary notice on the owner, allowing them to know that you're out there wanting to get paid. What's a 20-day notice? Well, in order to have a mechanic lien, you have to serve this notice in California, either 20 days before or after the delivery of the goods. So I said, okay, well, can you, you sent 55-gallon drums of urethane foam to this job site. Uh, can you just go there with your truck, pick them up, drive around the block and let them go again? Because then once you release possession, you can reserve a 20 day notice. And now they're locked up in a warehouse. So here's creativity. In my conversation with the uh, uh, client, he said that mid-state subcontractor could not pay their debts as due, meaning that's a definition of insolvency. I know from my knowledge of the UCC, if someone purchases goods on credit while insolvent, you can demand the return of those goods and you get constructive possession. So I wrote a letter uh, demanding the return of the goods and therefore got constructive possession. With constructive possession, I then served a 20-day notice, 
on diamond walnut. And when that happened, I believe I had established a good link between mechanic lean and the UCC. Uh, diamond walnut kind of laughed at me, think that's crazy. You didn't do the 20 day notice on time. Uh, the judge disagreed. The judge followed, I said, you gotta follow the bouncing ball on this one. And I explained how under the UCC, you regain constructive possession. With that constructive possession, I have then released it in its timely 20-day notice. Diamond Walnut had already paid Midstate, our subcontractor, and then they're ordered to pay us also. Awesome. So now let me give you one more fun one. Please, please. This is, I represented a minority enterprise small business investment company. They make loans to minorities and they often run into situations with not being paid. One of those, uh, we had a client in Irvine, California, and I was told by the client that if we just made a demand letter and then we sued them, by the time the 30 days are up to answer the complaint, all of the equipment collateral that they had an interest in, a security interest, would be in Mexico. So what I, what I did, I said, okay, well, there's self-help repossession in California under, I think, UCC 9-503. And what I did, I prepared a document. It looks like an official document. I had little blanks to fill in. You know, I put in the code section and I put this. I you know, put it on a legal-sized paper, right? So now, wow, it really looks official. And then I signed my name at the bottom and I had my signature notarized. So now I have a document <laughs> on legal-sized paper. Looks like it's filled out fine. And then um, I then went to the police, the Irvine Police Department, and I said, I need someone to come with me to make sure there's no breach of peace when I repossess the collateral that belongs to the SBA. So Officer Cluck uh, from the Irvine Police Department comes with, and this is before everybody had a video on their cell phone. I mm -hmm. hired a guy from LA to come down. I had a flatbed truck with a forklift on it. We pulled up to the back, the doors were open, and the three of us walked in like, a, like an arrow. I was wearing a three-piece blue suit, and I said, my name is Daniel Callahan. I represent the Small Business Administration, and I'm here to repossess the collateral. Now, I know Mr. So-and-so, he's going down, but if you want to go down with him, that's fine. Or you can just go right now and point out all the collateral that belongs to the SBA. And he went this and that and this and this and this. And here's a forklift. And, well, then we're loading all this stuff on the flatbed truck, and our forklift ran out of gas. So I, they pointed out a forklift. So we used their <laughs> forklift, pick up our forklift, continued gathering all the collateral, and then we left. I got a call from the attorney for that company during the mid-afternoon. And he said, is it true? All they had to do is say no? Yes, that's true. Because I can't breach the peace. And Officer Cluck was there to make sure I didn't. Mm -hmm. But uh, I just scared the heck out of him. And we got all of this. And we didn't have to go through the regular regular court process. Now that is thinking outside the box, you know, with the document I did up, or with constructive possession, the mechanically and the UCC grafted onto the mechanically in statute. Mm -hmm. This is kind of what I offer. I offer thinking outside the box. And what has made me successful is not just preparation; it's really thinking outside the box. I don't go lockstep through the CCP. So when you sit down with um, with the case, do you 
Um, do you begin to kind of map out where it's going to go? Do you put pen to paper? Or are, you, or to, are you cerebral about it? Are you doing both? Are you doing focus groups? How do you kind of come up with some of this stuff? Obviously, you have a knack for it. But how do you um, kind of get to the second, third, fourth, fifth level of, of creativity? Well, first of all, often in my firm, the case is being worked up by other attorneys. If it's going to go to trial, then I'm alerted to that fact. This one's not going to settle. This is going to trial. They bring in all the depositions, all the exhibits. They tell me which deposition to read first, and I read them all. And as I'm doing that, I'm dictating trial thoughts. This is handy. I think this is something. So I got a folder of just trial thoughts. Now I think I need something here, and I have a folder of trial assignments. And so now I read all the depositions. I read all of the exhibits. I link them together. Uh, with the help of my staff and my other attorneys. Uh, that is my process of how to be prepared. And I guess I think everybody should be prepared. Everybody should know you cannot put something off until tomorrow because you do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. And if you have the time today, do it. And if you do all this stuff, uh, then you've explored every thought that your mind came up with. And some of, your, I, I, some of my notes, I, I have this great idea at the beginning. Oh, I should think about this. And as I get mm -hmm. deeper into the case, I go, oh, well, that was pretty juvenile. <laughs> but I go yes. back to all my thoughts, right? See, I don't want to miss any. So Sometimes you end up having flashes of brilliance or genius, and then you kind of work through things and get away from that. And then ultimately you come back to that and think, you know, that was my gut was, was right in the beginning. Um, yeah. It really takes, you know, people listening won't appreciate how much time you have to spend sort of thinking and processing and analyzing and trying to visualize what's going to happen in the courtroom or what's going to happen with your adversaries. Would you agree with that? Totally. And, and I'm tuned in 24-7. I'm thinking about the case as I'm driving to and from work. I'm in the shower, wherever I am. I'm just going through my head on every issue. And I come up with a lot of thoughts. I have a notepad by my bed. So, oh, here's something. You know, or I have a dictation machine in the car. Oh, and I dictate thoughts. Uh, and I try to gather them all up. So uh, when I'm- You, you want to know what's funny? What? Years ago, I, um, I, years ago, I had um, publicly shared that I kept the notepad um, by my bedside, and um, which I which I have have had some means of note taking or something by my bedside all the time. And and people would laugh about it and ask if it's true. And of course, it 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 is true. And there's a reason for that. And I'm going to ask you about it in one second. Some of the best. Sometimes some you have these flashes of brilliance, right? I mean, I mean it. Right. Like you have these. You're laying there in bed. You're the the watching a ball game. Your hat. Your mind is a quarter on the game, and it's three quarters in on the case that you're working up, or the lights go off, and you're laying there, and something comes to mind, right? Right. Exactly. And, and you if you don't write it down, what happens? You're afraid you're going to forget it. Right. Yes. So you got to write yes. it down and they can go to you sleep. Write it down. So you write and it if down, you don't you go to sleep then. And if you don't write it down 
And then you don't write it down. And then in the morning, you you wait, you think, I'll just remember it in the morning. Don't forget yeah, it. Sure. Well, come on, that's not going to happen, right? I can I tell you that I've had stuff that I thought of that were great, this wild, I thought, brilliant thoughts about how to approach something. Wrote And I was writing them down, like scribbling with the light off. You know what I mean? And then <laughs> I, I've, I've done it with like a highlighter too, where I was just trying to, where I, I, I reach for the wrong pen on my counter and yeah. I'm writing and I'm like, and I wake up and I'm trying to read the highlighter, but it's there. I'm right. telling you that is an, for any young lawyer, that is an invaluable tool. You have, you're, you are using your brain. Listen to this man. Listen to what Daniel is saying. You're using your brain and your creativity and your ingenuity. And you can't just confine yourself to nine to five or eight to five or seven to seven and say, you're only going to have the, the ideas you have are only going to come up during those periods of time. Right. No, that's and they come up anytime. Right. So you, they could come up at dinner. And come up when you're sitting there at a restaurant and come up when you're thinking of something and come up there when you're watching a game and come up when you're driving and you have to have a means in to sit to, to to record them because that's that's the that's the best you that you're going to be able to give to that to that trial yeah neil so, that is so correct and daniel also, you sounds like you've got a notepad you've got a <laughs> recorder in in the car you're making sure that you have a way to memorialize it to save any any great thought that you have. And it takes the pressure off. If I'm thinking about it, but I'm, I'm too lazy or whatever to write it down. Now I'm worried. I can't get to sleep because I'm just thinking about it. I should write it down. Just <laughs> right. write it down. Write it down. Go to sleep. Right. You know? Exactly. So smart. So smart. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me ask you a couple of, of questions that, so um, I, some things that I, I think are, these are questions that I like to ask people. Um, so, Give me the 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 type of witness that you would most like to confront or face in court. An arrogant son of a bitch, uh, the the know it all guy. Okay, because right? uh, I love that because their personality comes out in front of the jury, and I'm so prepared for this. I don't I know this know it all guy. I think he knows it all, but I know every question I ask. I've got rebuttal for whatever he's about to say, and I can impeach him. So uh, when you have somebody who just think they know it all and they have a snooty kind of, uh, way of being, great. I would love that more than anything. I bet you just pick those guys apart, don't you? Pretty so. much. <laughs> I can see it. Uh-huh. So, okay. Um, the, tell me the part of a trial that you, um, that you appreciate the most or that you value the most for you. Like, what do you enjoy to the extent that you enjoy trying cases. And what I mean is if we are putting together a, a, a golf scramble, right. Okay. And you got to have one person long drive and one person's going to be your, you know, your anchor when it comes to hitting the long iron, another's going to be the person is going to be your, you know, your chipper and the guys, your, your person's your putter. Where are you in, in the trial? Where would you put yourself in, in the, the trial process? Well, actually I kind of excel in all aspects. That, okay, now my head's getting pretty big. What I like <laughs> is jury selection because I like to, I prepare for it and I bond. Jury selection is about bonding, right? And also, of course, it's about finding who you need to strike. I love doing the opening statement because this is the first time they're going to hear what the case is about. And I'm going to show them what it's about. 
in a very persuasive manner and show them on the big screen whatever I'm talking about. Uh, the cross-examinations are fun, especially when you get somebody who's lying. That's just wonderful, you know, because then you can just lead them, give them a little bit more rope, and then bam. Uh, so I like that. In closing arguments, I will summarize all the evidence that's come in in a persuasive way. And I also look at what the opposing counsel said in his opening statement and point out how there's no proof for any one of these statements. Right? Do you think cases are won in, in uh, voir dire or in opening statement? I think cases are won uh, in opening statement. I think that voir dire, you've formed a relationship and a bond. And then the opening statement, the jury's listening to this guy that they like. And if they like you, they're more likely to believe you. So that they form an opinion during the opening statement. Now, it's going to take something significant to change their mind. And I will fill in all the blanks. Uh, and by the way, if I do an opening statement, I say something's going to happen. That means I already know it. I already know which, which witness is going to say it and you know, what document shows it. So they don't catch me making overstatements. Uh, but doing the closing is a lot of fun. So other, other than that, so, your day-to-day direct and cross, it all depends on which witnesses right, it is. Right, sure. If I had to ask you to pick one person in history that you would cross-examine, who would it be? <laughs> well, how about Adolf Hitler? <laughs> okay. I don't know uh, one person I would like to cross-examine more than anybody else, but the description of the individual would be a, uh, an arrogant know-it-all. Uh, who may also fortunately be wealthy, right? So you got a wealthy, arrogant, know-it-all. They don't sell. They don't sell to the jury. So what I don't want is have a single mother who may have made a mistake and felt feels bad about it because now I'm beating up on somebody and now the jury's hating me for beating up on this sympathetic individual, right? So you got to be careful in your cross-examination how the jury perceives this witness. And if the jury is, feels sympathetic to this witness, then you better trot lightly. You know what I mean? Have you ever watched a, 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 an examination done by an opposing counsel or another lawyer, or even one that you've done yourself, where you feel like the lawyer is not appropriately gauging the jury's connection to that witness? Yes, definitely. Um, I've watched a number of attorneys do cross-examination where I'm most impressed by or am not impressed by is when there's some obvious facts out there that they misconstrue or they fail to bring up. And it's just a lack of preparation. They're like winging it. They must have prepared this examination last night, you know, and they don't have it linked to all the relevant evidence. So I've seen that. Uh, more often than not. Do you mean that they that they that they overstate something, or that they don't have the appropriate fact to? They is it like well, yeah, the light was you said the light was green, and the witness is like I've always said it was red, and they don't have yeah. nothing to back up that that up. Can you expand well, on that? What do you mean by that? They will overstate uh, the facts in a question to the witness, so that the jury will adopt the scenario that he has in his question. But the scenario in his question is non-existent. That never happened, right? So they're sticking their neck out uh, by trying to persuade a witness to say something and agree with something that is not true. Hmm. 
my what I do then, I get up and I go deep into that issue and expose what this lawyer was trying to do. And of course, that's that's bad if I'm able to do that. Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff. Really, really, really good stuff. Um, tell me what's on the horizon for you. What what what's coming up next for for you for your firm? I presume you have trials that are coming up. What's uh, what's in the hopper? There's a number of good cases that are coming through our system, our, the law firm. And so I will be jumping in to help on those cases as needed. Uh, we just resolved a couple of cases for several million dollars uh, just recently. And um, I also am focusing on Callahan Consulting, and that's providing uh, mentoring to attorneys. Uh, remember, I gave you an example of the constructive possession on mechanic lien mm-hmm. or the, the legal size paper with a notarized stamp on it for to get the possession of the goods. Uh, I will help people through Callahan Consulting to find the best lawyer, and also I will help uh, attorneys to figure out a very unique and creative way to get from point A to point B. Good stuff. Dan, if people wanted to get a hold of you, let's go through that again. How would they reach um, the, the, the law firm? How would they reach Callahan Consulting? Um, let's start there. Uh, Callahan Consulting. Um, you can call my cell phone, 949-584-4434. Uh, you can call the firm, uh, Callahan and Blaine. 714-241-4444 and we can help you and do you have are there websites and if you are if there oh, are yes. tell me about the web presence how would they look you up online uh, callahan consulting is uh callahan consulting.com and callahan and blaine uh, is callahan-law.com okay and how about on social media do you have a social media presence I do, but I don't mind my own social media. In other words, I have people that will kind of do that for me. Uh, remember you were asking me about software before on computer yes. programs? You okay. said that you were computer illiterate. Yes. Exactly. Other you. people around, including Oliver, who is yes. available to help people and you. I, I thought that was, um, uh, that was a, I appreciated the honesty. So many people will get on there and say, oh, I know everything about so-and-so. And then, you know, of course they don't, you know, right. so I appreciate, um, you know, and I'm looking forward to one day meeting Oliver. So <laughs> <laughs> Oliver, the tech guy. Yeah, he's so, great. He's great. I actually, so, I just saw him in Spain. We were there about uh, at the end of September, early October. And Oliver was uh, there as well. And he had moved to Spain, but he's moving back. So, and he'd be happy to help. After uh, he had that one case, and then we did other cases together, and I would brag about Oliver. Oliver opened up his own business to serve other attorneys. Oh, my God. Fantastic. So what, good what for is, him. What is his business called? I don't know. All right. Well, if somebody wants to reach Oliver, they'll, they'll, they call, they'll, me. they'll, they'll call you. So, Dan, I appreciate... I mean, you're an award-winning lawyer. You've had some of the largest verdicts, uh, the largest verdict, I should say, at one point in uh, in Orange County uh, history. You had some, I mean, incredibly large uh, settlements. And the stories about your preparation, your trial preparation, your approach to cases, your thinking outside the box, creativity, the things that you really do in trial um, are really amazing. 
Um, I mean, what a story career you have. And so I've, I've well, had, especially since I started out climbing trees with McCullough chainsaw. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, you know, whoever, whatever relative said to you, this one ought to be a lawyer. You ought to look back at that person and say, thank you. And your client should probably look back and thank, uh, thank that relative too. Right. Um, so Dan, you are, I mean, look, I, I've said it before. I say it again. I, I've been blessed to have some of the very best trial lawyers, civil and criminal, um, come on this podcast and talk to us about, um, you know, their practice, their life, their approach to cases. And um, for me, it's like going to fan, it's like going to lawyer fantasy camp where you right. get to play next to, you know, the, legends of, uh, you know, baseball or basketball, because uh, I think lawyers and trial lawyers were like, um, we're a very unique breed. And they're, they're just, we're all different. Um, and I love hearing from people that have really been able to apply their personality, their style, their approach to, to cases in the courtroom successfully. Right. And you fit right in that group of people that have appeared on this podcast, Dan, and I'm so glad that you did. Neil, thank you very much. That's very kind. So uh, again, this is Neil Rockheim. Um, that's Daniel Callahan, one of the, the foremost trial lawyers in the country. He deserves that honor. He deserves to be, uh, to be contacted. He deserves all of the accolades that uh, I can pour on him. And most importantly for me, he deserves to have been interviewed on the Killer Cross-Examination podcast. You can subscribe, you can like us, you can find us on YouTube, anywhere pod you get your podcast, Apple, Google, Spotify, you name it, we're there. And, um, and you know how to find Daniel Callahan. He's even giving you his cell phone. So give him a call if you want to reach out. Again, this is Neil Rockind of the Killer Cross-Examination podcast. And thanks to my guest, Daniel Callahan. Daniel, thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Neil. Thank you very much.